Welcome to season six of the Life Giver Podcast, a place for honest conversation and hope for your marriage and home. This is your host, Corey Weathers, and I'm a military spouse, clinician, and advocate. And I'm bringing topics that I hear from the service community and counseling room to the podcast. This season, we're talking about what it means to be strong in body, mind, and spirit. And I'm giving you the challenge of rising above your circumstances to become the best version of you. So grab a cup of coffee or head out for that run. We have a lot to talk about. Welcome to the Life Giver Podcast. This is your host, Corey Weathers. We are in season six and we are talking all about what it means to be stronger, to know your story, to think about how to rise above that story sometimes and um, figure out how do we actually dig deep and and hopefully end the season stronger than we started. And I think we all have been through that a million times in the military community and the service community in general. But I think that there are certain seasons that are harder than others. And when we really have to dig deep in an extra way. And so what what I wanted to do this season was really kind of have opportunities to share more stories of others who really did find themselves in those seasons where they really did have to find that extra level of grit. And what did it take for them to become stronger? And that means means stronger, not necessarily physically, but holistically across the board, stronger, whether they had to develop confidence in themselves or maybe look at their physical well-being. But there's also these other dimensions like spiritual and social, which is a huge topic of how do we invest more in our community and kind of reach outside of the isolation that I think we've all found ourselves in, especially in the last year or so. So I am really excited today to bring to you guys a kind of a roundtable discussion, um, a partnership that was with the Rosalind Carter Institute for Caregivers and Blue Star Families, putting together a report on caregivers and their need for Lots of things, but not just identifying themselves as caregivers, but also what does it mean for them to achieve a a better level of wellness? And I'm going to butcher that if I really try to unpack it. (laughs) And so I'm going to welcome to the podcast Conwell Smith um, from the Rosalind Carter Institute, as well as Dee Blasick to um, the podcast, sharing kind of the same kind of content, but from different angles. So I'm so pleased to bring them to this roundtable discussion where we, we are going to dive into what they found on caregivers. But before I lose anybody that's listening right now, that's a, getting ready to hit the pause button and switch to a different episode, because you think maybe this doesn't apply to you. One of the reasons why I wanted to do this particular episode is that I am seeing across the board in the military family culture, number one, um, a great level of need right now. So much need that they're, um, but we're all struggling to identify what do I need? How do I take better care of myself? Do I have the bandwidth to take better care of myself? And not even really knowing where to start. I'm seeing that across the board, whether you're a caregiver or not. But I know from working with caregivers that this is something that they are often brought to a place where they really have to answer those questions and really have to dig deep in a very powerful way. And I think that there's something that we can learn from what we're seeing in the caregiver culture. So whether you think that you're a caregiver or not, some of you guys may be, and you might find out by the end of this that you are, but others of you need to listen to this as well, because we can all take something away from someone else's story and apply it to our life. So Dee and Conwell, thank you so much for joining me for the podcast. Welcome. For having us. I'm so excited for us to dive in. I really could nerd out on all of 
the, the, all the numbers and all everything that you guys found in this report. But I think where I want to start off is D you have a, a powerful story as being a caregiver yourself. Would you mind just starting for just a moment and sharing a little bit of your story and how you got connected with the coaching program? So D would you mind just sharing a little bit of your story and how you got to where you were doing what you're doing now and why you're so passionate about it? Absolutely. I am a caregiver to my army veteran husband and our visually impaired daughter, but that's not where my caregiving journey started. My caregiving journey started in 2008 when a friend of mine was injured and ended up at the VA um, after getting out of the military with nowhere else to go. His family had all since passed. And for some reason, he managed to remember my mother's old phone number from high school. And we ended up getting linked up that way. Um, Next thing I know, I'm driving to Houston with my children to pick him up and telling everybody we're learning two lessons today. He's going to learn humility and we're going to learn humanity. And what I thought was going to be a temporary situation actually lasted until 2017. So right at 10 years (laughs) since then, you know, my husband has has separated from the army. So we're living the civilian life now, which is definitely interesting, trying to transition out of knowing what you're doing day in, day out, and the stresses that come with it to new stresses. But luckily, I got connected with the Rosalind Carter Institute for Caregivers programs around about 2012. I was very overwhelmed with my caregiving duties. I just didn't know what to do. And I heard about Operation Family Caregiver through the Elizabeth Dole Foundation, Um, I went through the courses and I gained so much insight and strength that I just knew one day I had, I had to share that with other caregivers. And now I have the privilege of serving as a facilitator for Operation Family Caregiver and Operation Caregiver Support. So D, okay. First of all, I think that is a fantastic, like high level, like, um, almost like an amazing executive summary of how you got from A to B, right. And such a powerful story, but I would love for you to maybe deep dive for just a second, because there is someone that's listening that, um, that maybe is that caregiver and, Um, I think that there's a big step that happens between being a caregiver and living that day-to-day life of taking care of a a child, which you described, and also your husband, which you described as well, right? And there is a... there is a set of decisions that happened between number one, did you know that you were a caregiver? Number two, what was it like for you to be a caregiver? And, and what was it that brought to you, brought you to a certain point where you even reached out to the Elizabeth Dole foundation, because there's so many people that don't. Right. Um, and so there's a huge step that happens of like, I need help. And what was it that you needed help with? At first, I did not even realize I was a caregiver. I was just a friend who was helping another friend. And that was the end of the story there as far as I was concerned. Um, I was lucky enough to be selected as an Elizabeth Dole Foundation fellow. So I had the support that many people don't have. And when I started getting burned out, I started reaching out more and more, trying to figure out what is going on. Why am I not able to feel like I'm doing enough? Why am I so stressed all the time? And that's when, you know, they told me about Operation Operation Family Caregiver, and they suggested that maybe I hadn't come to terms with that I am a caregiver yet, and that I needed to examine my outlook on what I was doing and why I was doing it. 
Can you share what that was like for someone to say, I mean, because I think that's a huge thing. I know I've had that conversation with several people. Like, do you realize that you are a caregiver and, and why was there resistance there? Why would you think that there would be resistance to people accepting that? What does that say? Caregiving can be such a loaded term. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of reasons why I think people don't consider themselves caregivers is it's because you, this is just something you do for someone you love or you care for. Mm-hmm. This isn't an, a job and the term caregiver can seem like it's a paid job or an obligation that you have to do. And that's not it at all. But also when you're looking at the active duty military component of the caregiving, you see families who the service member doesn't feel like they can be open about their struggles. So you aren't a caregiver because they aren't admitting they need help or they feel they can't admit they need help. So it all comes down to having to step back at some point and just evaluate what is going on and what am I doing and what can I do to help myself? I have heard so many stories of caregivers who have, um, who've said to me something like, I feel like I've lost myself. Um, I feel like I don't know who I am anymore. Um, There's also, if we can be super honest here, there's also that feeling of guilt of how do I, you know, I want to care for these people that I love so much. And yet it's, it's costing so much for me, right? Like if if we're going to talk about caregiving, we really have to talk about the inner struggle that no one really wants to say out loud, which is, um, I'm honored and I, and I'm thankful and grateful that I get to love my family member this way. And at the same time, I'm exhausted. Sometimes I'm resentful. Sometimes I wish my life was different. Sometimes I wish like if I could wave a magic wand, this would all be different. And I can't do anything about that. I don't know how I can't say that out loud because then that creates guilt and shame in the other person. And so what they do is they store up all of those feelings And I share with people that it's almost like a shaken up Coke bottle. After a while, you're going to implode or explode. And I find that our introverts typically implode and our extroverts typically explode, you know, whether it's through rage or impulsive decisions or things like that, just to have control over their life. And that's what it comes down to is, is not feeling like you have any control. And so do you mind sharing and being, and then I'm going to come to you, Conwell, I haven't forgotten about you at all, but do you mind sharing maybe being a little bit vulnerable and sharing what was that experience like for you? And when they asked you to take a look at whether or not you might be a caregiver, how did you wrestle with some of those deeper feelings, that inner struggle? Yeah. I mean, it took a lot for me to get to that point because I'm someone who has always lived by a list. I have a list. I know what I'm doing day in, day out. And I have a list for lists I need to make. So my life up until I started caregiving was pretty much anybody could pick up where I was and take over. If I got sick, everything was organized. And I noticed that slowly I started getting to the point where I just, I didn't know what to do anymore. I had lists, but they didn't seem applicable because caregiving doesn't run by a list. Some days are great and you can still continue to do what you're doing and other days are not so much. There's a lot of chaos or unexpected appointments or it's just a bad day and there's nothing you can do about it other than just wait for tomorrow and smile. And with that does come a lot of guilt and and a lot of resentment, like you said, because you do sit there and try to push through and try your best to do what you think you should be doing instead of doing what you actually should be doing, which is 
taking care of yourself so you can better take care of those around you. I mean, it, it was really hard in the beginning and reaching out. I think that was my first positive step. Huge positive first step. So Conwell, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us from the Rosalind Carter Institute. Would you mind sharing kind of a little bit of the partnership and, uh, and how you paired up with the Blue Star Families. I know they put out their lifestyle survey every year. Most listeners are probably familiar with that survey. We get asked every year to take it and does amazing things um, across the board. It's actually one of the surveys that launched me way back when as a clinician of of seeing some of these statistics and actually seeing how military families were doing um, in a positive way and in a negative way as well. And what could I do to help kind of shape the culture and, and affect the culture? And you guys have partnered up on this topic of caregiving. So would you mind sharing a little bit about that partnership and a little bit about what you guys do? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having us. Um, at the Rosalind Carter Institute, um, a lot of your comments earlier were really kind of speaking to what, to the essence of us, if you will. So, so we really focus on promoting the health and strength and resilience of all caregivers at every stage of their journey. And that led us to a little over, well, almost a decade ago, starting a program for military. For military. But as we started looking at the survey, we identified that there weren't questions about caregivers, but that also we knew that there was so much about the universal caregiver experience that wasn't being captured. And we knew that the difficulties within military families may be more complex than the general population. But just to say a little bit about the Rosalind Carter Institute as a whole, We've been around over 30 years, and we were really born of the experience of former First Lady Rosalind Carter. And I think that's really important because from our outset, we have been led by somebody who had an authentic experience. You know, she was caring for her father when she was 12 years old, and she has lived a life of caring for others and continues to play that role. So, so we're really led by somebody who understands the experience. And I, I just think that that's so critical. And that's why. Uh, we're really born of those supports for, for caregivers. Um, so as we partnered with Blue Star Families in 2020, we knew that they had released their 2019 survey. And um, we started talking internally because we noticed some things were coming out of that survey. For example, the stressors between spouses and service members. Uh, the reason why spouse employment was such a stressor had to do with day-to-day -day demands. Um, and we were really concerned and surprised that military spouses had such high suicidal thoughts at 10% compared to 15%. And that got us thinking internally um, that, you know, wouldn't it be nice if we had specific caregiver questions and we could dig deep? Um, Operation Family Caregiver and uh, Operation Caregiver Support are programs that are uniquely designed for the caregiver of the military, of the service member. But what we wanted to find out is what does the whole caregiver experience look like in a military family? And sure enough, that's part of, that's part of what we gathered out of the survey. Um, we wanted to dig a little deeper. We wanted to find out, you know, what are the, what's the extent of the caregiving experience? And in fact, we found that nearly a third of the respondents were also caring for a parent or grandparent. And another third were caring for a child with special needs. Like these, like like these lived experience, and so there are many types of caregiving that are taking place. But given the parameters of the military with deployments and whatnot, we did find that 
a lot of what people were experiencing was the same as the general population, but it was just a little more complex, a little more difficult. Um, and of course, you've, you've alluded to this, but a really important finding was just this issue of identity. Um, so we asked, are you a caregiver? And 62% of the total caregiver population in the survey identified as a caregiver and also said that they were exceedingly burdened by the task. But 26% indicated that they felt exceedingly burdened by caregiving tasks, but they didn't see themselves as a caregiver. And so I think it opens a discussion about seeing this population. And beyond the military, we're looking at 53 million unpaid and family caregivers out there. So this is an enormous population. And, and so I think seeing them and having them have that, uh, have that freedom to identify and that pride and that, and that vulnerability is super important to us. Okay. So you said several things that I could totally unpack and go down different rabbit holes, you know, for different reasons. I mean, you even just said a second ago that, that it's a vulnerable thing. And yet saying with pride, like how maybe we can get there by the end of this, this conversation of how do you both be prideful of that role and also be vulnerable at the same time? Like those sound like they contradict, even though they don't necessarily. Um, okay. So when I was in graduate school, um, and we were going through all the psychology classes and everything, I remember a professor professor that shared with me as we were looking at these different diagnoses in the DSM four at the time, um, rather than seeing them as these boxes to put people in, um, which most of the time when you're in school, you're really like every day you have a different diagnosis. You're sure of it. You know, as you're going through it, you're like, I could probably qualify as all of these at some point in my life. Right. Um, but he, he explained to us, think of it like a spectrum right? Everything. I mean, we, we, when we hear that word spectrum, we think about like the autistic spectrum and that sort of thing, but a lot of mental health can be seen as like a spectrum, right? And so when you see it that way, you suddenly realize like all of us at any point can land anywhere on the, on this spectrum of mental wellness and health, right? And so I think about that when you know, it also helps us actually relate to somebody and realizing I could find myself there at any point um, to, for some diagnoses that are more mild, like anxiety, depression, um, you know, some of those that aren't necessarily chemical issues. Right. And so when I think about this, this topic of caregiving in my mind, it goes back to this idea of being on a spectrum, like this kind of like with polar extremes. And, and I think it's sometimes easy for us to hear that word, like Dee was saying, to hear that word caregiver and go, no, 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 that's not me, right? That's not my life because that means this way over there, you know, and my life doesn't look like that way over there. So therefore that's not me. And I think we can do that from different angles, right? We could, I'm sure that there are caregivers out there that are in um, extreme intense situations where so much is being asked of them. And it's very difficult for them to relate to those that maybe don't have that much on their shoulders and saying maybe they don't understand my life either. When really, I'm, I guess I'm hoping that if we talk about this from a spectrum, that we can relate to these little pieces on, on both sides. So when you talk about identifying yourself as a caregiver and what does that actually mean and how what you found actually translates in, in a lot of ways to the general population, my mind immediately went to this place where I was like, you know, um, 
I don't necessarily want to, I don't want to say this to minimize a caregiver's perspective. And maybe that's why we're having this conversation today, right? But I don't want to minimize what someone else is going through because their situation is so much more extreme. There's a friend of mine um, that just today her is wheeling her daughter into surgery, right? And it's a special needs child that their whole life they've been an EFMP family, right? And so I can't relate to that. And I don't want to minimize it by saying, is it possible that as a military spouse, um, the fact that I'm having to take on the sole responsibility of my kids and the household and, and everything that's going on and also managing, managing external family members and any issues that they might have. And then especially our special op um, uh, families who have a very fast tempo in and out. And so that creates kind of even more independence at home, right? It's hard, I think, sometimes for the general population to say that maybe I might be a caregiver, or at least identify on some level with the level of stress that is required of me to take care of my home and my family. So can you maybe share a little bit more about what you're seeing in that data um, does that make sense to you, that spectrum and yes, how to talk about that? And and how do we start to help people identify appropriately where they actually are and maybe start to embrace what is being asked of them in their life so that then they can get to where D got to, which is actually asking for help if they need it? Well, we did find some interesting findings in the report. You know, as I, as I mentioned before, we found that caregivers and military families they may be sandwiched with 44% caring for more than one recipient, you know, often children or parents. We found out that invisible conditions, such as emotional or mental health concerns, were quite prevalent. Um, and we found out that, you know, that they're more likely to experience mental health challenges and sleep issues. But this leads to a broader discussion. And so I'm going to kind of step back to the 10,000 foot for a moment. Last fall, um, the Rosalind Carter Institute issued a report called Recalibrating the public health challenge of caregiving. And I think that this is really critical because oftentimes caregivers feel like they're in the shadows and they kind of tiptoe because there is a care recipient, right? And you don't want, you know, there's almost this guilt comparison of my stress versus the, the person whom I'm, I'm caring for. Um, but we need to pay attention to the caregiver themselves because what we know is that they are in fact a vulnerable population. We know that they will put their health on the back burner for the health of the recipient. We know that they end up having mental health challenges. We know that they have fiscal challenges. We know that they are truly giving so much of themselves. You said something earlier that they can lose themselves in it. And that can create a host of, of health concerns as well. And so, how can we treat this population and see them in their own right to get at better preparedness and prevention and to give them those supports that D does all the time in the program of allowing them to step back and take the stress down a notch and figure out how to balance all that's on their plate and recognize that they're not alone, recognize that, that all that they're experiencing is largely a shared experience. Um, so that's really what we try to accomplish. You know, we often say that we want to meet them where they are um, and have programs that, that meet caregivers where they are. But it's a bigger issue than that. It really is a public policy discussion of seeing this population that is giving of themselves uh, freely uh, at tremendous benefit to our society. And so we need, we need to elevate that. We need to celebrate that. 
And I can say it isn't contradictory to feel this vulnerability and feel tremendous pride and worth. That's what love does. When you're caring for somebody you love, there's always going to be a part of your heart that is proud of yourself for that. Mm -hmm. And caregivers should be proud of themselves for that. In many ways, there's no greater calling. I'm so glad that you said it that way. Um, I think depending on who you are, I, I would say a majority would kind of fall into that place of, vulner of vulnerability, maybe insecurity, feeling invisible, right? And sometimes sharing your story helps other people affirm just what it is that you're doing every day and how much effort and work and character and strength and courage and all of those things that it requires of you on a daily basis. And they pro we probably need to share that a whole lot more with people. And just as a way to say, I see you and I also see your character and what, what you're doing every day. And it is a high calling. Um, but I also like what you said, as far as, um, developing that sense of identity and purpose that, um, you don't exist only to take care of other people that you have incredible value. You have incredible worth. And, um, and I agree with you. I'm seeing that as a very big issue right now with, um, spouses of every level trying to figure out like, you mean I can do something for me right now? What does that even look like? So I should have asked this way in the beginning, um, but do you have a working definition for caregiver that you would want to share? Because we, you said in the survey that there's a lot of people that didn't even identify themselves as a caregiver. So do you have maybe a working definition we can use? Well, when we are considering caregivers, we are considering the, the caring of someone with a medical condition or an illness. So that term caregiving does get tossed around a lot. And we see that in public policy quite a bit where sometimes we're talking about childcare, for example, or, you know, we really are speaking of that caring of somebody in, in a medical circumstance. So, um, so there's that part of the identity. Um, I do want to say that in the survey, we really did stress upon feeling exceedingly burdened mm -hmm. because we wanted to capture, we wanted to capture that part of the experience when people are not identifying as caregivers. Mm. And so, you know, some people don't realize that, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're delivering meals to a, a service member or a veteran, or that's caregiving, mm -hmm. if you are um, making appointments or attending appointments, you know, there are all kinds of levels of the caregiving experience. And we want people to feel connected to all of those levels and to not, uh, to not minimalize the service that they're providing on behalf of someone else. So I think that's something that caregivers have a problem with. They are empathetic to a fault. No matter what they're doing, they know there's someone else who's doing, in their opinion, so much more. But even those who they elevate thinking that I'm not a caregiver, they are, look at what they're doing. Those caregivers are also thinking the same thing about the people around them that I could never do that look at what they're doing. I'm not a caregiver. So making that self-identification is very important. Can you guys unpack just a little bit more that role of feeling burdened and why that was important for you to keep that as part of the survey? Because I, I don't want to pass over that too quickly. Well, we felt like that was a way to capture the experience, especially in light of someone who may be answering the survey who may not have identified as caregiver. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that, that way we can capture that they are doing the services. Mm -hmm. um, and, 
And that way we were not dismissive of how difficult the experience is for them. You know, you don't, you, you want to make sure that you're capturing that population that isn't identifying and you're, you're capturing what that experience is for them. So um, you're saying it's not necessarily the, the, what you're executing each day. It's also your experience of how you feel attempting to execute those things each day. Well, I think that's what we're trying to, that we were really trying to get at the, the difficulties that were being experienced to military families. Mm-hmm. So you can't get at the difficulties without really kind of assessing burden. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and I think that led to, you know, a number of recommendations that came out of that report to really try to help those military families navigate and, and you know, better, uh, be better prepared for, for what's often inevitability in a, in, in a family. So, so powerful to be looking at all of those things, you know, just that word burden could like really spark a lot for a lot of people, right? There's different things that we, we are all carrying for different reasons. Um, my, um, we are a new EFMP family, um, and we have a son with asthma. And so again, you know, you find yourself comparing to other people, right. But just trying to face the stressors of, you know, allergy season and what, and how that invokes a cough and an an asthmatic cough during COVID and how you send a kid to school with a cough during COVID and not get sent home every other day because the cough sounds contagious, right. Or trying to navigate those doctors and making sure that you have the next location. We were almost sent to the middle of the desert where we wouldn't have had care and then trying to figure and all the anxiety that comes with that of like, is this going to be okay for my family? Is this going to be okay for my kid? Can I handle that and parenting them through that? Can I personally handle the doctor's appointments that will come from that for travel times and all that? So there's different levels of stressors that come with, especially an active duty lifestyle. If you're relocating a lot, so thankful for the FMP family or uh, program for helping us that definitely helped us in this most recent situation. So I can identify there are these different kinds of burdens that we carry, right? Um, depending on if we are concerned and worried about the mental health of that person that we are caring for, right? I love the fact that you included mental health. A lot of our teenagers right now, our military teens are really struggling mental health wise. And I've known several that have talked about having to even um, institutionalize their teenagers, right? And dealing with what mental illness can do in your family and what you may have to sacrifice um, in order out of love to care for that person. So it's such an important topic. And I'm glad that you guys are bringing up these additional facets for us to kind of think about when we think about just caregiving is not just the typical picture that we might have seen or thought of a couple years ago. So, um, Dee, I want to come back to you for a second. You were sharing, um, we were talking about how as caregivers, you can kind of feel invisible, not kind of, I think a majority of people do, because a lot of what you do, um, is done, you know, in your home, in your car, usually a lot, right? Um, there's the stressors of wanting to get a job. Like, um, Conwell was saying in the survey, when you see like there's issues with employment and a desire to work while well, looking at, well, what keeps us from getting those jobs? It's not always you know, there wasn't the job out there. It's the lifestyle stress that maybe keeps you from being able to actually go get that job that you want, you know, that can shift your life or shift your purpose. Right. So you can, a lot of times feel invisible. You can feel like nobody sees what you're actually going through. Um, would you mind sharing a little bit of that and then maybe share what was the difference that it made in your life for you to reach out and, and ask for help? And did it shift how visible you felt like you were? 
Yeah, definitely. In the beginning of my caregiving journey, I felt like I was just an accessory to my friend, to my husband, to my daughter, anybody who needed my care. I was just an accessory. I was something they brought with them on their activities. So I really lost myself. I, I lost who I was and what I liked to do. And like I said, luckily I got in with the operation family caregiver and my coach was fantastic. He asked, you know, where I was on my list, where am I taking time for me? And I couldn't answer him. And he kept pounding that into me. He's like, you need to be on your list. And eventually he helped me make the decision to go back to school. I finished my degree. Um, I started getting more in touch with nonprofits and, and advocating where I could, especially on behalf of caregivers, because I knew and I, I still know what it feels like to be a caregiver and what it feels like to not be seen or feel like you're not being seen. And then I also know what it feels like on the other end to still be able to do my caregiving duties, but have a career or a purpose that fulfills me. So being able to work with other caregivers, I mean, that that is a dream come true for me because I do get that opportunity to take people who felt just like I did and maybe help them find their purpose and find that time to better take care of themselves. So do you, one of the, one of my favorite things to do lately is when I um, travel and speak to spouses, I'll throw out this question where I'll say, you know, if you had, it'll be something like if you had three hours to do um, anything that you wanted to do with no responsibility, no kids to take care of, no doctor's appointments, no nothing, no budget to do, like you had three hours, what would you do with, with yourself? And I usually get like almost, it sounded like your answer that you gave your coach, which was like, usually it's like deer in headlights. Like they're already staring at the wall because that's probably what they would normally do if they had three hours is just stare at the wall for a little bit. Um, sometimes I'll get things like I would sleep. I would, you know, throw, throw in the handful of things that we say all the time. I go get my nails done, I guess, you know, like, but the, usually the answer is nothing. That's the first answer is that they would say is I would do nothing. But I think it's it's reminds me of what you took to your coach, which was a, I don't know what they're really saying is I don't know what I would do, because the next question when they say something like nothing or sleeping, I'm like, well, what would you do after nothing? Right. What would you do after you spend some time doing nothing? Because there needs to be something on the other side that brings you joy. Right. And so I love what you said as far as going back to school and how you are now um, doing some advocacy work, because I think that oftentimes we make our purpose and our identity and what brings us joy a little too hard. Don't you think like we make it a little bit too hard by thinking that we've got to make one decision today that's going to like script out the rest of my life. And it's like a pass fail. And so we find ourselves kind of paralyzed of not really knowing what to, what to do next because we're afraid to take a step. Right. And really your purpose was birthed out of your story. Right. And I think a lot of times our purpose and our identity and our joy is usually birthed from our story. So would you mind kind of walking through how did you get to that place where you didn't know how to put something on your list to deciding maybe going to school was the next step? What was that like mental gymnastics that you went through? Oh my goodness. It, like I said, I'm a list maker. So I wrote pro and con lists and then I would look at them and go, no, that can't be right. And then I'd write another one and it's like, no, that can't be right either. So I had, I had to keep going through and examining why I was feeling the way I was and why I couldn't decide 
who I was. Mm. I mean, I've known me longer than almost anybody in, in my life. I should know what I like and what makes me happy. And I couldn't because I was so much now, like I said, an accessory, a part of those who I was, who I was providing care for. And at the time, my husband was active duty. So while I'm taking care of our, our friends, taking care of our children, taking care of the home life of active duty and getting ready for rapid deployments and all these fun times, my needs, what I thought anyway, were selfish. And I just didn't need to do that. I, I felt guilty. I, I even resented myself a little bit for thinking that I needed time for myself because it's like my kids are going to grow up one day and I'm going to miss all this. No, you'll, you'll always see the important things, but if you don't take care of yourself, you will miss everything because you're too busy worrying about something else. And then once I finally made a list and I showed it to my coach because he wanted to see what I was coming up with. And I was like, I have a trash can full of ones if you want to see those, but this is the one I think is going to stick. This is it. And he looked at it and he goes, you're still not on there. Mm -hmm. what, like, what did you have instead? Oh, I, I had all sorts of things. I was help the community mm -hmm. and it all ranged with help others. Mm -hmm. And it was never help myself. And he said, when you take two minutes and put yourself on there, then you'll be able to accomplish help your community. Mm -hmm. And I told him, how, how is that going to help my community? How is, how is two minutes going to help my community? He goes, because you're going to reset. You're going to have a more clear view of where you best fit in. And then you can make a difference. And I started doing that. It sounds silly, but I live by the two minute rule now is if I can do it in two minutes, do it immediately. And if I can take two minutes for myself to reset, do it. So I always take that two minutes and think, is this, am I going into this clear headed? Am I going into this, you know, a hundred percent knowing what's going on. And most importantly, am I going into this rested? And if I can't say I'm going into this rested and ready, then I need to pause and I need to step back. And, and tell everybody, this is it. I can't right now. My cup is empty and I'll come back. And okay. it took a long time to get there. Yeah. I think that's an important thing for you to say. Right. Um, but I also noticed a part of your story was learning healthy boundaries. And so I'd love to ask, um, what that experience was like. And then Conwell, if you want to share, like, why has that been such a necessary thing to teach caregivers is that importance of boundaries and maybe what you've seen as far as what you guys have applied to the, the coaching programs and, and the, the biggest things that you feel like caregivers, um, need to learn. Right. So if you want to think on that, um, and let me go back to D. Boundaries is huge. Absolutely huge. Caregivers have to learn boundaries or you will get sucked into doing everything for everybody else. And you will be, put it bluntly, you'll be shriveled up at the end of the day with no energy to even take a shower. I mean, you just get so sucked into everybody else's problems that you forget that okay, I haven't, I've been having headaches for a month now. Mm -hmm. I, maybe I need to go see the doctor or, you know what? I haven't had my physical in two, three, four, five years. I, maybe I should go get checked up. And like I said, you just get sucked into everybody else and you have to put those boundaries and it's hard because they push back, mm -hmm. but that's why they're boundaries to keep mm -hmm. people from pushing back and running over you. But D, how do you set boundaries with people that you love that you're taking care of? And that that's kind of your role is to take care of them. Yeah, that's where it gets fun is trying to tell people, no, that was the first thing I learned was I need to go to the store. No, I don't. I can't right now. 
I had to learn to say no. Mm-hmm. And well, why not? It'll just take a second. And then you can finish what you're doing. Mm-hmm. No. And it's a lot of consistency with no. And then you can push to other boundaries. But I think no is that first one that everybody works on. That's what I encourage with every caregiver I work with is it's okay to say no. They may get upset, but if it won't hurt them in five minutes, if it won't hurt them in an hour, if it can wait 24 hours, then it's not an emergency. Mm -hmm. So just understand you're doing what's best for you and you're not hurting anyone else. Well, and that appropriate no said in kindness, right, um, is a healthy relationship builder. Like you said, people might push back, but it actually defines the relationship better. People know how to be in a relationship with you. They know how to ask the right questions and and you get to be the catalyst that makes that relationship even healthier, right? So it takes great courage. Um, but when we can learn to say that assertively, which means that we find value in ourselves and in our time and our, you know, that that's an important um, th- ability for me to be able to say no, but say it in kindness in a way that I'm not harming you and I'm not asking for something inappropriate and I'm not running over your rights. If you have a desperate need to go to the grocery store, I want to honor that request, but I just can't right now, right? Defines that relationship in a completely completely different way. So let me come back to Conwell. Conwell, you guys have these amazing programs. Do you want to share a little bit more about the programs and share what you guys have found are some of the biggest things that have been successful in, in coaching caregivers to a healthier place? Well, I'll tell you what I'll start with is coming full circle back to that survey, because the interesting recommendation, in addition to recognizing that diversity and caregiver experiences in military families, I mean, we kind of changed our language from military caregiver to caregiving in military families. And that's a real difference because we know that the caregiving responsibilities are beyond the veteran. They're beyond the, they're, they're beyond the active duty spouse. Um, but a recommendation that came out of that is really increasing awareness of and expanding access to caregiver respite and support programs such as our own. So, and I think that that's really key because people need to have access to those supports because part of that self-care is hitting that pause button and engaging in some sort of support program where you're allowing yourself to have those conversations about everything that you're experiencing. I am going to ping pong this back over to Dee because Dee actually is the facilitator in in our programs for her to just talk about how we're meeting people where they are because I think she can do it better justice than anyone. Well, I may be a little bit biased, but I think RCI has three wonderful supports for our military community. Being a past participant in OFC and having been able to serve as a coach and currently facilitate our virtual support group has given me so much more insight into the programs than I even had by going through OFC. Um, OFC offers our caregivers terrific one-on-one intensive coaching. They teach self-care, time management, and most importantly, problem solving. So you can help yourself to set up those boundaries and know who you are and learn who you are. I've helped caregivers who just wanted to make five minutes out of their day so they could read an email or have a cup of coffee uninterrupted. And then I have one who she's kind of one of my favorites. She's a Vietnam era caregiver and she wanted to go back to school at almost 70 years old. She wanted to go get her master's so she could help other caregivers to serve as a counselor. And now serving as facilitator for the virtual groups, I get to see the post 9-11 caregivers and their struggles, some of them still active duty, some of them 
have separated from service and I see their parents, their spouses, friends, children. I mean, you name it. I've, I've seen the relationship to a veteran and they're working on the same things. So we incorporate all of our OFC content into our virtual support group as well. That just allows everybody to have those the supports and those skills needed that they can take with them anywhere in their journey. I think that stress management and the problem solving were the most valuable to me because it allowed me to set my boundaries and to put myself first. It's so needed. And again, across the board, I think there's an element of this that we can all like, we all need to work on these areas. You know, it's on that spectrum. We have some that you're more in that place of desperate need. And there's others of us that are on that track. Like if we don't start taking care of ourselves, and I think COVID might've escalated that. Maybe that's actually a good question to ask is what did you guys see over the last year? I know I saw huge increase in counseling sessions and mental health um, struggles, not only for our kids, but for everybody for adults as well. Um, I found so many people struggling with isolation, struggling with um, anxiety ramping up, difficulty making doctor's appointments. So I can only imagine what you guys saw in the caregiving community. So would you mind sharing what has that been like and how have you guys tried to address, especially as we're going into kind of this new surge of COVID, um, how did you guys decide to address that during COVID? We were very fortunate that we were already doing some of our programs, many of our programs virtually. So we didn't have the lag that that some organizations had in changing their interaction style. But last fall, we actually did a report called Caregivers in Crisis. It was really focusing on the caregiver during the pandemic. And we just found tremendous anxiety levels. I mean, in upwards of 88% of the caregiving population expressing, you know, increased uh, burden and anxiety during during COVID, um, it also led us to embark on some some work in the in the um, caring working while caring space because we know that it had such an impact on those caregivers who are also employed. Um, and so we came out with a report yesterday that I do want to highlight um, because one in five caregivers is, you know, one in five working individuals is experiencing caregiving, and we found that forty four percent of them had to back off and go part-time and nearly 20% caregiving resulted in them leaving work altogether. And so really kind of elevating uh, this issue of working while caring is also important because you mentioned earlier about the military families going through their own struggles of employment. And, you know, we know that there's such a, there's such a focus on making sure that spouses have meaningful employment while serving in military families. And it just is that added component. And of course, the pandemic has made that so much harder on families because they're just being pulled in a multitude of directions. Yeah, I definitely saw that as well. And I'm so glad that so many of of the coaching abilities and um, platforms that you guys are using is available, whether there's COVID happening or not. Um, I know we all desperately need in-person and need community, but I think you guys have probably seen like I've seen that you maybe it's partially like using what you have. Right. I I remember there was one point where everything was virtual and it was like, we can, we can be upset about this or we can be grateful that we're still connecting and that we have the ability to connect in some way, like what our life would be if we didn't have zoom, if we didn't have the ability to meet virtually. And so sometimes, you know, if you're hearing this right now and you're maybe thinking, maybe it's time for me to do what Dee did and ask for help and, and maybe reach out and see if you can reach out and find a coach. And if there's a part of you, that's like, I don't know if I can do something else 
ourselves virtual. Sometimes I think we have to make the choice that Dee made, which is um, I'm a person of value. And what I need right now is community. What I need right now is support. What I need right now is tools. And that there's no shame in being able to say, hey, I have a huge heart and I love my family and I want to see them succeed, but I'm not great at time management, right? Or I'm not great at problem solving. And if I've seen anything in doing Strength Finder with families is that everybody's talented at different things. Some of you guys out there are fantastic at organizing and creating these amazing to-do lists like D can. Like I would love to hire D to make my to-do list for me because that's something that brings great stress. Whereas somebody else out there maybe struggles with a problem solving or somebody else out there has like high empathy and you have a hard time setting those boundaries that it's okay wherever you're struggling to identify what's hard for you, what creates the most stress in your life in light of caregiving, in light of trying to manage all the responsibilities that you have in front of you and then reach out for help on that. You don't have to do it all by yourself, right? Dee? That be true. That's absolutely right. I, I think when it comes to most facets of life, it it definitely takes a village, but especially for a caregiver to know you're not alone and to know that there are others around you who understand your struggles. And maybe they don't have the answers, but maybe they can point you in the right direction. It's just so important to have that connectiveness that a lot of people just don't have simply because they don't identify as a caregiver. Well, and let me ask one other question. Um, you guys have mentioned coaching several times. I'm a huge fan of coaching. It helps you kind of get help under the radar, if you will, and get often what is clinical um, tools and um, helping you process through things um, through a certain number of, of sessions or meetings and get the help that you need very quickly and it not necessarily be mental health counseling. So would you guys mind sharing kind of what you're seeing as far as the coaching route and how mental health ties into that? What do you guys do? if you're meeting with someone and coaching with someone and they might need additional help or need a referral, how do you guys handle that as an organization? All of our coaches are trained through RCI specifically in focus and self-care and resources and referrals. We have any training and we have plans for everything. But if a caregiver comes to us and they need a little bit more of that support from mental health side, we do what we can to help give them a warm handoff to the proper organization or, or type of help. We want to listen to our caregivers. And during COVID, that is mental health has definitely become a, a bigger issue, or at least I'm hearing it more is I need help. Where can I turn? Which that's great. That's the one good thing I'm, I'm happy about COVID for is it has allowed people to say, I'm not okay and I need help but our coaches are trained to listen for those little cues, not necessarily the, I do need help, but the little sentences that may not seem like it. And they, they're there to help refer and to help find what that caregiver needs and help them get on whatever path it is and using resources that they may not know they can use, or they may already be using to further their benefit. Thank you for that. You know, and that's another reason why I love, um, organizations and I love programs and coaching like this is that it can be that gateway, right? So, you know, wherever you feel, whoever's listening right now, wherever you feel like you are, whatever kind of level of help that you need, doing what Dee did and just reaching out and saying, I think I just need extra support, you know, just learning how to manage my life and manage my stress. You know, Matt and I did a quick, you know, survey 
goodness, this might have been, I don't even remember when this was, I think it was before he deployed. So it might have been last year around the time of COVID where it was like measuring what are the biggest lifestyle issues, stressors that have happened in the last six months. And then you add it all up. And, and if you have these certain, you know, numbers in a majority of the military families that did this survey, landed in the zone of having a major health condition or a men- or a health breakdown within the next year because of the amount of stress that our military families go through on a daily basis, whether you're a caregiver or not. So I think sometimes we're under such a level of stress, a high level of stress, it becomes white noise. And so we think that it's just a normal life. And then you add some caregiving on top of that. And you're like, well, my life is stressful and I'm not doing great, but I'm not doing terrible either. And I think sometimes we have to take a step back and sit down with a coach and let somebody kind of let kind of see a different view of ourselves and go, no, you really are going through a lot. No human being can handle this level of stress and intensity and that it's okay for you to ask for help. So Conwell, I think to close, can I just come back to you and just kind of share Um, If somebody's listening right now and they're kind of like, "Mm, it sounds like I might qualify for this and I maybe it's time for me to reach out, but maybe that's not for me. Maybe I need to save that for somebody else. What would you say to encourage someone that's listening um, about RCI and and what you guys are feeling and what you guys are, are hoping to accomplish? What would you say to that person that's listening that's kind of on the fence? I would say look us up, uh, rosalindcarter.org. Look at what we provide. But more than anything, identify with our mission because our mission is the health, well-being, and resilience of you, the caregiver. That is going to be our mission in all that we do, in every interaction that we have, and certainly in our coach interactions. So you deserve that. I want to tell caregivers, you deserve that. Um, I have a huge concern for our our military families right now as a whole. Um, I think a lot more need the support and help than they ever did before. It sounds like what you guys also offer is a level of community, which is desperately needed right now. Um, You know, Dee, maybe I give you one more question. Um, What do you think the role of having a, a fellow caregiver in your life Um, What has that been like? I know you've kind of jumped into this kind of new purpose of advocating and helping other people and helping caregivers see their value and all of that. But was did it affect you? Did it affect your growth to be around another caregiver and kind of battle buddy with them? Uh, Absolutely. Um, Like I said, my caregiving journey began in 2008. It wasn't until 2012 when I got connected with the Elizabeth Dole Foundation that I realized there was a community just like me. There were other people taking care of friends and family. And that is really what set me on the path to know that there are options for me. There's support out there and I can be that support for somebody else. Until I had said my story out loud, I didn't know how many other people were taking care of friends. I thought, okay, that's just our weird situation. But then, you know, I have people reaching out to me through Facebook. It's like, oh, I, I take care of my friend too. How do you do this? How do you, when you have no relationship outside of a friend and it's nice to be able to have that in common so we can talk about it and, and see, these are the resources I use. They they might not work for you, but maybe it's a start to help you get where you need to be. And just having somebody else in my corner cheering for me, if nothing else, even on my worst days, telling me, you got this, look at you, you've got this. That did more, I think, than any amount of counseling I took, not to downplay counseling because I believe mental health has a huge role in it, 
but having somebody there who, you know, has your back is, is a wonderful feeling. And it makes you feel so empowered to take on whatever it is you need to do. Well, if there's anything that I can encourage, um, to wrap our time up, I mean, what I, what I think that everybody needs right now more than ever is, um, our tribe to come together, um, and to support each other in a new way. And when you have organizations like this that are trying to rally around the tribe and support you through it and, and, and see you and also make sure that you, um, have everything that you need to succeed in life. I mean, wouldn't it be great to be able to go to an organization that says you have incredible value and to be told that on a regular basis, I, we need a whole lot more of that, especially within the spouse culture. So I appreciate so much what you guys are doing. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for what you're doing for our caregivers. Again, I think that there are so many listening that don't see themselves as caregivers. And if you are one of those that kind of woke up to this a little bit today, I hope that you'll go to their website. Uh, I'll make sure that it's in the show notes and that you guys can also um, do that kind of those conversations, start having those conversations, just reach out and see if it's something that you do qualify for. I'm sure that if for some reason it's not, they'll send you to someone who does. It's okay for you to ask for help. It is okay for you to reach out and say, I think I just need a little bit of extra support. So thank you guys so much for joining me and for what you do every day. Thank you for listening to the Life Giver Podcast. If you're enjoying these episodes, please share the podcast with other service couples that may benefit from the show. If you'd like more information about me or Life Giver, head on over to coreyweathers.com or life-giver.org.